Hello and welcome back to Two By Guys. I'm so excited for my next guest today. Another interview across the pond. My guest today <laughs> is a best-selling author, award-winning podcaster as well, an illustrator and a social media influencer based in London. Her first book, Women Don't Owe You Pretty, was published in 2020. It's a feminist manifesto which challenges outdated patriarchal narratives, which we love to do. And her second book and debut novel, Girl Crush, was just published in 2020 and has already reached number one on the Sunday Times bestseller list. Congratulations. In all her work, she uses her platform to bring women together and give them a permission slip to define feminism on their own terms. More things we love. Please welcome <laughs> to Two Bye Guys, Florence Given. Hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me, Robert. Um, and thank you for the wonderful intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's very nice to meet you uh, after following some of your work and reading this book, which is very cool and centers bisexuality. So I, yes. I'm excited to get into that. Uh, but before we get into the book, we always start on this podcast with you. So to, to start us off, can you tell us what pronouns do you use and how do you identify on any sexuality spectrum or any other <laughs> spectrums you would like to identify on? Okay, uh, so my name's Florence Given. I use the pronouns she, her, and I currently identify as bisexual. I feel like probably one of the most bisexual things ever, um, at least for every bi person I've spoken to, is that it's a constant uh, mental flip-flop of, is this really real? Because I don't really know, because everyone around me doesn't think it's real. And I, I kind of like the confusion of being bi. Like, I definitely know that I like women. It's my attraction to, the, to men that kind of flip-flops every now and then. Um, uh -huh. So I, I'd say I'm definitely bisexual, um, but there are some days where I really do question it. <laughs> I think that that constant questioning and a little bit of confusion about where we are is actually like almost what defines bisexuality yes, yes, in a way. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, end up, I end up going on some kind of like mental tangent and then realizing, oh no, you definitely are bisexual. Like it just lands there every single time. It's funny because it is like for me, it's a stable identity. I expect to identify as bisexual for the rest of my life, but mm -hmm. also like I I often don't know what that means or yeah. what I, what I want to do with that or who exactly I'm attracted to at this mm -hmm. moment. But but that but that sort of fits under the umbrella, I think. Yeah, there's an amazing author you've probably heard of her, Jen Winston. She wrote the book Greedy, um, and I think she said something in it uh, about how confusion is probably the queerest thing of all <laughs> yeah and I think it's just it's just so true yep she was on this podcast actually oh amazing <laughs> I love her yeah me too um cool okay so uh so you identify as bisexual but yes. tell us about how you came to that identity did you always know that like when did you actually realize that and when did you start coming out using that word I didn't start using the word bisexual until I moved to London. So originally I'm from Plymouth, which is a smallish town um, in the southwest of England. And there wasn't really a big queer or gay scene. Uh, there was for gay men, but there were plenty of, uh, well, well, there was two. And, and in a small town, that is a lot. Two gay bars <laughs> for gay men. And uh, apart from that, there was, there was, I didn't even think that, queer women existed, particularly queer women that were feminine. Mm. Um, I had this very stereotypical idea of what uh, a gay woman looked like. I didn't know that someone could possibly 
like all kinds of genders. I didn't know that that was something that existed. And so my feelings didn't fit into this neat little box. And so um, I basically suppressed and suppressed and suppressed them. And, you know, I would have these immense feelings towards my female friends growing up. But I was just, I just thought that I just loved women. And that I was just such this uh, impassioned female friend. And I just wanted to braid their hair and make them extravagant gifts and write them letters. And I didn't think that that had anything to do uh, with the fact that I was also deeply in love with them. I just thought that that was um, a sign of being a good friend and all of this stuff. And then I realized that women didn't look at other women the same way I did. Um, but I also can relate to the way that straight men looked at women. Uh, yeah. Because the way that straight men looked at women, I didn't relate to that. I didn't relate to the core, oh, look at her, and like wolf whistling on the pavement and, and oh, he's sexy. Like it was this grotesque grabbing of women's beauty that I didn't relate to because the way that I had felt towards women was, yeah, I want to have sex with them, but I also want to look after them and I want to do nice things for them and I want to adore them and I want to care for them. And that wasn't something. Um, and of course, there are men that do adore their girlfriends, obviously, but that wasn't the. I hadn't been exposed to a version of loving women that I could relate to because I wasn't looking at them through this male gaze. I was looking at them through my gaze. And so uh, that's a really long way of way of answering your question. But I came out privately to I say privately as in because I'm a public person. So I, I came out privately to a few friends when I was about 17 years old. My mum didn't believe me at first. Um she kind of thought it was this idea or something that would go away. And then it wasn't mm-hmm. until I was not no longer in a relationship with a man that she was like, oh, okay, uh, you actually are bisexual. You are dating women. Uh, and she totally supported me after that. But I think it was, it was hard for people to uh, grapple with uh, in my family, maybe because I'd been with men and now I was with women and that was confusing mm-hmm. and they thought I was lesbian. And then uh, it wasn't until I saw my dad a couple of years later, we were at some dinner and then I said some guy was attractive and he was like, oh my God, are you straight again? And I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, I'm bisexual. Um, yeah, and I think I've, I've, I've been very lucky with my experience that I've not experienced any, at least implicit homophobia from my family. It's, it's more like, you know, the microaggressive stuff. Like, am I still going to get grandchildren? You know, that kind of thing. And it's like, ah. Uh-huh. Oh, that was the first question my parents asked me was, do you still want grandchildren? I'm like, yeah, this this doesn't have anything to do with that. I know. And And it's funny how, like, bisexuality I think is unique where when we come out people don't just believe it often it's like they Mm. want it to be proven with experience or with who you're dating or something but most of all Robert I found that that comes from within the community straight people Uh, don't really care about who you who you're sleeping with Mm, interesting in my experience it's been from the queer community because there's more of a sense of gatekeeping straight people don't want to gatekeep straightness or queerness because they don't Mm-hmm. But it, for, for, in my experience, it's been other queer people that demand the list of sexual encounters for you to even use the word queer. Um, Interesting. That's been my experience anyway. Yeah. And of course, like, not, 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 um, I've had amazing, I have amazing queer friends, obviously, and I love my yeah. friendship group. But in terms of like stuff online, stuff at gay bars, that kind of stuff, I, and all my queer friends agree when we talk about it, we're like, oh, we're not actually afraid of what straight people are going to say about our identity it's other queer people and I get I guess that it it comes from this sense of wanting to protect something that um 
you have been uh, marginalized for, like, I can understand where this comes from, but I don't think it's okay still. Yeah, you're right. Like, I I especially have noticed that for me from the gay community. I mean, I have many gay friends who are very supportive and great, but there is some gatekeeping or biphobia from the gay community. Is that mm. something you've experienced from the lesbian community if you've interacted there too? Um, Not really in my actual, this is the thing, Robert, also, yeah. is I feel like we live, we exist on two different plane, planes of existence. You have the online world and the real world where people don't have the guts and the courage to say the horrible things that they say to you online. Um, I've had people try to accuse me of being fake for my sexuality, um, all of this kind of stuff, but no one's ever said that to me in person. No one would have huh. the audacity. It's, um, no, that's, that's not been my experience in person from people, but it has been online for sure. Interesting. It's the online comments. Okay, I want to get to that stuff later and these parasocial relationships. Mm. And I want to ask about your coming out. But just one other thing I really connected with that you said, like, even though you're we're, we're different genders, like, and I unfortunately am uh, regretfully have to admit that I did identify as a straight cis man for a while <laughs> in my life. And, and when I did that and was only dating women, I, I identified with what you just said of like, I didn't like the way that other straight men were relating to women and talking about their relationships. And it was mm -hmm. like this contest almost. It wasn't, yes. it wasn't really, you know, very intimate or real or like mm. sweet. It was, it always felt like to me, like there was this culture of conquest of yeah. men, you know, like yes. all the men around me trying to win, win a contest or something and ownership. And I don't know if that impulse to look at those relationships differently or, you know, seeing those examples that helped you is actually kind of a queer thing of like dismantling that patriarchy and building a relationship in a in a new way. Yeah, well, I think I don't know if if, if this has been your experience, but the way that men look at women makes it hard for queer women to not feel predatory even just approaching other queer women and this is something that me and mm. all my queer girlfriends talk about is that there's this fear of being seen I i'm bisexual but that doesn't matter to a woman that i'm approaching it's like this um the stereotype which is an awful stereotype of like the predatory lesbian and being afraid to make moves and feeling afraid of making girls uncomfortable and that comes from like even growing up when I was growing up in school and stuff I would look differently at women than perhaps straight women would look at other women and then you kind of get the sense when like straight girls also there's nothing more homoerotic than like what straight girls do on a drunk night out they kiss each other they tell uh -huh. each other they're so fucking sexy in the girls bathroom and it's this overwhelming display of love and affection but if I do it that's a bit I'm, I'm, I, I also am I then being the right. will you be uncomfortable if I do that because I actually like girls mm -hmm. I think that the way men have looked at women has made it harder for women to approach other women because we're constantly afraid of being like men and there is a yeah. very awful stereotype of the predatory lesbian and I know I'm bisexual but if I'm approaching a woman that is a that's a sapphic connection and it, there's still this this fear amongst myself and other queer women that I've spoken to of like oh can I can I do this is this weird I don't want to hurt her feelings and it's almost this like it breeds this over cautiousness of not wanting to be like straight men 
Right. So desperately trying not to be like the creepy men that approach us. And the truth is most women don't even have that in them. Most of the women that I've been approached by are, you know, doing it so coyly to the point you don't even know if they're flirting with you. And I think right. that... Um, yeah growing up and seeing the way that men handled women the way that men spoke about women it didn't allow me to even think it was okay to approach or flirt with a girl because that was I was like oh no that's bad that, that, that that's wrong that's what I've seen men do and I've seen I know how that feels so I don't want to and it's this also right. this uh fear of rejection I don't have that anymore but I did when I first came out I was so desperately afraid of not wanting to be like men when I flirted yeah, with girls right I identify with that <laughs> so much. Be, I identify with that so much. And I think so many men who listen to our podcast will too, because of course, if you, if even you don't want to seem like the sh- predatory straight men, then Actual by men, by men yeah. really, really, you know, like I definitely felt that and I didn't want to sort of emulate that, but I felt like if I'm approaching women, how can they not see me that way until mm. they get to know me? And I was so scared to approach women. And I, I think what happened was I was then overly cautious, like you said, to, you know, and went too far the other direction. I was just yes. very, very shy and reserved for a long time, sort of until coming out. Yeah, it was it was really empowering for me for the first time to allow myself to check out women. And I spoke about this. Um, I wanted to talk about this theme through Girl Crush. I wanted to write about a protagonist that goes on this journey where she lets herself kind of check women out and explore that side of her. Because I think that, first of all, for bisexual women, there's not that many narratives written about bisexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to read about the experience of coming out and all of the nuanced, strange thoughts we have where it's like, am I the only person thinking this? I wanted to write a story where all of the messiness is explored and yeah, just kind of go through all of those little little bumps in the road that happen when you first come out. Hi everyone, you may have seen this on social media, but just in case you didn't, I am hosting a trip to Maine for the bi community next June. You know, if you live in a big city like New York or LA or another big city, you may very well have a bi community group that you can meet up with and make real world connections. But not everyone has that. And I have heard from a lot of you who listen to this podcast that you live in places where you don't really know other bi people or it's difficult to connect with them. So that's why when Trova Trip approached me with the idea of hosting a trip for the bi community, I thought it was such a great idea. And it's going to be a great way for anyone from anywhere in the country or another country to come meet up in Maine, meet some bi people in real life, and make some queer friendships that will hopefully last well beyond the trip. So you all took a survey about where you wanted to go. The top domestic choice was coastal Maine. So that is where we are going. June 19th to 23rd, 2023. Sandwiched right in between Portland Pride and New York City Pride. So I highly recommend you come on the trip. You go a little early for Portland Pride, which is the weekend before. Then our trip is Monday through Friday, June 19th to 23rd. And then New York City Pride weekend is June 23rd to 25th. For anyone who's going or anyone else who's interested, I will help coordinate people who want to meet up at Portland Pride or New York City Pride. We've already had a handful of bookings for the trip. The first 10 people to book get $200 off the price. So if you're interested, I would encourage you to book this week. 
I have heard from the Trovature people that those first 10 spots usually go within the first week or two, so now's your chance. We can accommodate up to 20 people total. The trip includes some nice hotels in Portland and Rockland, Maine. It includes all transportation. It includes a number of meals. Check the show notes or our social media for the link and you can look at the itinerary. In addition to some fun activities organized by the trip company, like a lobster boat experience, some oyster shucking, a tour of a state park, a wine tasting, some other awesome things. You can check it out. I will also be hosting some events like a buy discussion group. We'll sit down one day and recreate by request. Totally optional. Uh, we'll have a buy game night. And also, I would like to try recording an episode of Two Buy Guys with whoever goes on the trip. We'll give each person a chance to tell their story and, and also maybe talk about the trip a little. The trip is open to anyone who identifies under the buy umbrella and partners are welcome as well. I'm really excited about this trip. I've always wanted to explore coastal Maine. I was glad that was one of the top choices. Some of your other international choices were great too. For example, Italy and Greece were high up there. So if this trip goes well, I really hope we can continue doing this and continue offering trips for the buy community. You only need to pay 25% of the price to book your spot. If for some reason the trip doesn't happen, you get a full refund of that deposit. That's all I can think of. Check out the link in the show notes, book soon, and I hope to see you in Maine in June 2023. So like, you wrote this nonfiction book, Women don't know you pretty. And then a couple years later, now you've published this novel. Mm-hmm. How did you decide you wanted to write the first book? And then why did you decide to move to fiction? And like, what have, what's it been like? What's the difference has been? And I guess I'll throw this into it. Like, did you have the idea to center bisexuality and write a bi story? Or did that just kind of come naturally from writing about what you know? Okay, lots of questions. I'll answer your first one. My first book, Women Don't Know You Pretty, was pretty much already installed into my brain. I'd started posting my illustrations and my essays on Instagram when I was about 18 years old, and they started to just blow up on social media. And my book agent said to me that she thinks everything I was putting online would be so accessible uh, in a printed and bound book. She was like, it would look beautiful. You could put your essays and your illustrations in there. And I was like, me, write a book? She was like, yeah, your essay. She was like, they're brilliant. Go and go and do something with them. Uh, and so I made up this book proposal, this book idea that comprised of 21 chapters with everything I wish I could tell young women, older women, women who are doubting themselves. I wanted it to be the book that women passed on to their friends when, they're, when they've been ghosted, when they're heartbroken, uh, when they're feeling like the actions of others are clouding their self-perception of how fucking amazing they are. I wanted to write that book And I basically wrote the book proposal, sent it out to publishers with my agent, uh, and then we got some offers back. Then I went to go and write the book, and then it published in twenty June twenty twenty. And it was it was everything I wanted to tell young women: everything about boundaries, everything about consent, everything about beauty standards, everything about checking your privilege, everything about sexuality. And the book is laced with illustrations and also parts memoir, part memoir where I talk about my own experiences, how I came out, uh, my experiences with setting boundaries. I think I just wanted to write this thing also that was almost a bit of a Trojan horse into feminism because the cover of the book is so pretty and beautiful. You might just want to buy it so that it looks nice in your house. And that's what happened a lot of the time is people bought the book because it looked pretty. 
Um, <laughs> and then they thought, oh, that looks nice. And then they put it on the coffee table, picked it up one day and read it, and then ended up leaving their husbands by the end of the fucking book. And then that's, wow. that, this is what's happened. And then women have stopped shaving their body hair. Women have said no to their husbands when they don't want to have sex with them anymore. And it's gone totally fine. And they were like, they've messaged me like, can you believe it? It went fine. I said no to my husband. And he said, that's okay. Women have this thing that's instilled in them that you can't ask for things. It's, it, there's so much in there that I could go on and very deeply about, about why women are afraid of asking for things hmm. but I will go on for ages and there's so many questions questions I want to answer here that you've asked me um I just <laughs> I just I just wanted to write this book that essentially was a 101 on bite-sized information on how to stand up for yourself how to set boundaries and like an introduction to feminism essentially so that people can go off and read other books about it and people can learn for themselves and that's why I wanted to write women don't know you pretty and of course you uh, pointed out that was a non-fiction book and then I went on to do fiction and for me it didn't really feel like much of a jump because I've been doing storytelling for so long even with my illustrations which is what I started out doing I was always creating these characters with my drawings and I've always been storytelling privately to my friends I've always been writing stories on my laptop and I wanted to do something that was a form of, instead of it being a straight piece of nonfiction activism, I wanted to tell stories with these themes through messy characters, because I had so many messages from women after they'd read Women Don't Know You Pretty saying, um, Floss, I feel so bad because I'm crying over a boy and I've read your book. So like, what's going on? Why am I still crying over boys? And I was like, wow, how how... How has it happened now that feminism has almost become like the toxic masculinity for women where you're not allowed to cry, you're not allowed to be heartbroken, you're supposed to be tough and strong. And I was like, I didn't, I don't want this at all. I don't want anyone thinking that being a feminist means being perfect and not being human and always being able to make the right decision. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write something that humanized feminism, that humanized making mistakes, that humanized uh, fucking the wrong person making the wrong decisions, oversharing on social media, all of this messy stuff that people go through. Uh, mm -hmm. That's why I wanted to write Girl Crush. And I wrote another book proposal, which was really embarrassing for me because I sent it to my uh, edit, my book agent. And I was like, so I have this idea for a book. Um, it's fiction. It's not, not, not like anything I've done before. And she loved it. And then we sent it out. And uh, then I wrote it. And it published last month. And uh, the response has been amazing. It's just hearing back from other bisexual people or people who are in the closet or straight people who are like, oh my God, I feel like I've been, I've stepped into a bisexual person's shoes. Mm -hmm. And it's been like alarming for them to read about this experience. And the book basically starts off being quite joyful and then it gets quite dark towards the end. And it's not what a lot of people were expecting. There's just so much that happens in the book and it's been really uh, it's been an interesting process and so different to nonfiction because people essentially take their own ideas to a fiction novel because it's like a movie in your own mind. Yeah, yeah. Instead of facts and opinions and memoir. Right. And it's a different kind of representation and you really see things play out uh, step by step sort of. Was it your goal to write about bisexuality or was it your, your goal to sort of tell a personal story and write something empowering and the fluid sexuality just happened because it's your experience. I wanted, I, I'd read this book 
um, a couple years ago during the pandemic called Bad Dyke. And it's about this thick. It's very tiny. I think it's about 100 pages long. The author's called Alison Moon. And it made, it was the first book I'd read that was funny, queer and dark. And I, as soon as I read it, I put it down and I was like, I want to do this. I want to do something like this. I'd, I'd never read a book with a bisexual protagonist before. And I had felt seen. Her experience was nothing like mine. And yet all of her observational humor, all the things that she noticed about people um, and, and the inner monologue, I was like, this is making mm-hmm. me feel so seen. It's so funny. Um, I would love to do something like that. And so I definitely wanted to write uh, a bisexual protagonist. I want to be, I want to write more novels in the future. And I want it to be this thing where it's like, if you want to read a book with a bisexual character, you read a Florence Given novel. <laughs> because I think that there is so, <laughs> there is so, th- there's a massive lack of it. I, I basically just yeah. wanted to write the book that I wanted to fucking read. <laughs> Cool. That's what I've heard so much from bi people is because there's such a lack of bi media out there, fiction and nonfiction, that Mm -hmm. so many people who do this, including this podcast, it's like, well, I made the thing that I wanted to consume and it didn't exist yet, Uh uh, which makes a lot of sense. Okay. So so your main character, bisexual protagonist, a messy bisexual protagonist, which we love, uh, her name is Eartha. So in the book, she she I want to talk about your coming out and contrast it with her. She comes out almost by accident, by kind mm-hmm. of drunk posting something online that that ends up going viral. So you told us about your coming out to your friends and family, but since you're a public person, when and how did you come out as bisexual more publicly? And like when did you get gain your following? Did you have the following already? when you came out privately and like, how was your coming out different than, than Eartha's and why did you write hers the way you did? So I wrote Eartha's coming out the way I did, because I think that we constantly put people, I'm seeing it happen on TikTok, especially where, uh, and with my friends where they, my friends who aren't social media influencers will put a video on TikTok. Uh, it will go viral and suddenly they have an entire audience in their metaphorical bedroom they've seen their bedroom they've woken up with thousands of people the next day and it's so they're like floss what do I do how do you deal with this every day hundreds of people are telling me what they think about me what what, what the fuck do I do (laughs) and I was like oh my god this is happening to someone every single second right now someone's going viral and their life is changing right fucking now and Mm -hmm. and then what do we do we put them on a pedestal as a truth speaker because of maybe this one thing they said on a spur of inspiration in the morning and now we're holding them up to this idea. And what do we do? We fill in the gaps of who we think this person is. We don't know anything about their lifestyle. Uh, let's say they made a video about uh, morning meditations that went viral. But maybe let's say they also, also like to do coke on the weekends and they're pictured out doing cocaine. And then they're cancelled because their message contrasts what they were saying in this TikTok that they made for 10 seconds in their morning routine. And it's like we're, we're, mm. we're, we're bolstering people up and and knocking them down every single second of every day and I've watched this happen online to other people so many times and I was like I want to write something about this because this is my coming out journey and my uh rise to my public figure was so gradual and it was so steady and I've had I've been surrounded by an amazing team of people to support me on my journey and I think that there are going to be a lot of people who don't have that because it's happening so quickly now. Um, Mm. And to answer your question about how my coming out journey online contrasts with Earthers, I made some kind of wishy-washy 
pride post when I was like 19 years old in uni and it was in my font and it was all in rainbow colors and it was like everyone's somewhere on the spectrum and of course I meant sexuality spectrum but some people thought that meant the disability spectrum and I was saying I was autistic and I was like oh god (laughs) and then there was um anyway so that that was a whole thing but I I also didn't know it was very clear that it was about pride but there were some people who were like what's going on here are you saying you have autism Anyway, um, and I was like, no, I'm also not saying I'm gay. I'm just saying, you know, everyone's a little bit gay. That was that was my gateway. That was my the uh-huh. gateway drug to bisexuality is going, everyone's a little bit gay. <laughs> uh-huh. And that's, that's what I was saying to everyone. And that's basically what I'd said online. But a year previously to that, I was making illustrations of Peach's lyrics saying, I don't have to make the choice. I like girls. I like boys. That's a Peaches Uh lyric. And I was making illustrations from this and posting it all over Instagram. Like, yes, bisexuality, but not knowing that it was about me. And yeah, it was just so plainly obvious, uh, like just hiding in plain sight. The closet was made of fucking glass. Yeah, I it's funny. I did the same exact thing. Like I was a writer for Law and Order and I was pitching bisexual storylines and kind of sticking up for the bi potential bi characters before I even realized why I was doing that. I was just like thought it was a cool thing and but I didn't I wasn't ready to connect it to myself. And and I've just heard so many other bi people say like my first coming out was to say, well I'm not queer but isn't everyone a little bit yeah you know or like every you know it's all spectrum and everyone's a little queer that's kind of like (laughs) the first taste and I wonder it's almost it's almost like so many bi people's coming out is a little gradual like yours that yeah your what you wrote in your book is the exact opposite and it, it it's huge in a moment while she's sleeping it's almost like a I wonder if it's like a fantasy that many bi people yes. have I, I, I also, rather I also, than the reality. I know, but I, I also think though that it's like, you see Arthur go through this thing of, you know, uh, she, she makes this drunk coming out video and then suddenly she's heralded as this bi icon. So she's not even been out for very long. Right. And then suddenly everyone's like, you're a bisexual icon. Da, 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 da. And she sat there like, I've not even kissed a woman. I've not even had gay sex yet. What does it even mean? Yeah. Am I valid as a bi person? And then she's got people asking her for advice with all of this and all of that. And she she doesn't know what she's doing. And then uh, Eartha has her best friend, Rose, who's a non-binary lesbian, who shows Eartha. Uh, uh, Rose is basically the person I wish I had when I came out, which is someone to like, show me the ropes, uh, show me how it's done, talk to me about the language, what to say, what not to say, who to talk to, who to avoid. And yeah, so I really enjoyed writing uh in rose Arthur's best friend yeah but yeah i think every uh you know every bisexual person's coming out journey is different but also they're also fucking textbook and there's so many there's so many things there's so many similarities in it yep totally yes and and like many people in the comments on your instagram i have a crush on on both rose and phaedra yes <laughs> yeah i also dyed my hair pink recently and i was like hmm. oh <laughs> yeah there's a line in there that actually I'm remembering I like stuck out for me about it's something like um I always used to think girls that color their hair are like asking for attention yes. but now when I see Rose's hair I've like I have a crush on hers yeah, I mean, yeah I'm yeah. paraphrasing but something like that 
Yeah. Uh, I, I wondered if that came from you, if it was a sort of an evolution in your real uh, yeah, life. Yeah, I have, I have no idea. Um, I just wrote that from Eartha's inner monologue when she's watching yeah. Phaedra across from the other side of the street about, yeah, uh, people coloring their hair, look, looking like a walking human highlighter. I've always, I've always, <laughs> yes, actually, that's it. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've always um, wanted to, I love the color pink. It makes me so fucking happy. So maybe that's why I made uh, Phaedra's hair pink in the novel. I have no idea, but here I am with pink hair. (laughs) (laughs) Cool, cool. And now a word from our podcast hosting service and sponsor for this episode, Zencaster. Now, I know how challenging remote podcasting can be. I basically figured it all out myself in the first year of the pandemic. And there are many, many things to think of when you're going from start to finish, from recording to syncing up with guests, to editing, to post-production, to downloading and uploading and everything in between. That's why after that first season during the pandemic, I switched to Zencaster. And I chose them because I thought they were the best quality recording service. They record audio locally and then sync it up with each other so that each person's side sounds clean. And now Zencaster also distributes podcasts. So not only do they do the recording part the best, but they can help you streamline everything from start to finish. Plus now, in addition to studio quality recording sound, Zencaster records video up to 4K and will distribute your video podcast in 1080p to all available video podcast players. You can also now add your own custom watermark to those videos, which we have started doing, maybe you've noticed. Zencaster is all about making your podcasting experience easy. And with everything from local recording to automatic post-production, right in the tool. You don't have to leave your browser to get the episode done. So I highly recommend Zencaster. And now if you go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code 2BuyGuys1, that's T-W-O-B-I-G-U-I-S, the number one, you'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. I want you to have the same easy experience as I do for all my podcasting and content needs. It's time to share your story with Zencaster. Let's keep talking about what you were talking about, about this like kind of idea of the digital self and this world Mm. we live in of, you know, curating our identity for for public consumption, which you have some experience with. But what's what's the impact uh, on your sense of self in this like world where we're incentivized to look a certain way and gain popularity or social acceptance online? I mean, not not just for influencers, but everyone basically Mm. has a social media account there curating exactly and, yeah go ahead yeah ex- no exactly every, every every this this is why i wanted to write that as earth a story and why i said the thing about um anyone can go viral and you make a video about x then you'll be uh discarded next week when you do something that's contradictory and i think we're not allowing mm. room for human beings to be as nuanced and gray in the gray area as they are um and i think that it can affect people in different ways like you said whether you have 200 followers or 2 million followers everyone has a public image now and we're all posting our best bits every single day or week or whatever it is but no one's posting their uh their bad days and if they are it's almost now this like thing that's being leveraged to relate to the audience and then that line becomes really blurred about what what even is intimacy anymore if we're sharing all of our secrets online mm-hmm. and it's now become this constant overshare i don't even know how to define intimacy in the digital age 
when so much of ourselves is shared online it's it can be really confusing I personally have really good boundaries with social media now um I don't keep my phone in my bedroom it almost feels like an intruder sometimes because it's um you know it's like my work it's my personal it's all of this all of that so I don't keep my phone in my bedroom before I go to bed I make sure that I'm I actually interviewed this amazing woman called Aisha Akambi and she said something like I asked her how do you stay sane on social media because she has spoke widely about um her opinions on social media and how she thinks it's uh what, what she thinks it's doing to us in how we interact with people in real life and she said she doesn't post something if she feels like she's trying to prove something she asks mm. herself the question before she's sharing am i sharing or am i proving and when you post from this place of proving and wanting wanting to prove something or wanting to prove you, you've heard about this or heard about that or and being very reactionary that's when she stops and she takes a beat she takes a minute and then usually she won't post because it's not something that needs to be said and I think there's this urgency we all have now to constantly share everything yeah and no one's really immune to it because it's almost this like if your friends are talking about this then you should be talking about it as well and if you're not talking about it what does that mean about you do you not care or it's like we're constantly assuming what people's action or inaction means about where they stand on something and I think we like to know where people stand on things and what that has also done is given us this illusion of access to everyone at all times Um, and that we deserve that access to everyone at all times. And we deserve to know what strangers who don't know who we are think about certain things. So yeah, there's there's so much to say about it. Um, But I think it's so interesting because it's such a big part of our lives now. And I always want to, I always want to be having these conversations, whether it's on my podcast or talking about it in my writing or writing a story about it. Yeah. 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 It is hard. I mean, those are good. That's a good guideline of if you're proving something, it may not be the right thing to post. Cause you know, there's like, I like to share a lot and be very open, but, but then where's the intimacy in my real life? There have to be some things that are still for me and my, you know, yeah. not to share online, just, just to have them be intimate to me and special. But you also mentioned these like parasocial relationships, which the book focuses on, like basically one-sided relationships with people you don't haven't actually met but who you know can feel very familiar if they if they follow you and you're posting all this personal content so I'm curious how have those kind of parasocial relationships manifested in your in your real life how do you approach them how do you deal with like intense or unwanted contact or have there also been pleasant surprises that have come out of that? Oh my God, there have been so many pleasant, so many pleasant surprises. I love my social media accounts now because I've made them work for me in a way that they're not working me. And I think before I had them working me, it was like mm-hmm. being uh, directed by uh, thousands of people, which you do if you have a a personal brand or you're someone that engages with an audience you're constantly listening to feedback and I think you can almost get lost in this cycle of constant self-improvement when really the people in your life should be the people you should have about five people whose opinions you rely and trust upon to guide you people who are tough love people that know and trust you and then 
people that uh, perhaps not have a different lived experience to you or blah, 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 blah. But the, my point is, is that you can often get lost in the projections of other people online. And p- projections that people give you online can be entirely spiteful and actually have nothing to do with you at all. You can post a picture of yourself. And I've, I've had people reply to, I've got a friend who's an influencer and she's had people reply to her story, her selfies just going, fuck off you're so annoying I don't want to see your face today and this girl's done nothing wrong she's she's just posted a picture of herself but now she's left with this dump of negative energy and I think it's realizing that half of the stuff that people say to you online whatever that it's not really uh about you and um just to like also steer away from talking about social media so negatively, social media has changed my fucking life. I've met people I've dated on social media and had incredible experiences. It's led to almost every single one of my job opportunities because that's how people have found mm-hmm. me on social media. I've been able to connect other people on social media. I do these uh, Instagram posts where I just say flirt and make friends in the comments and they get thousands, like tens of thousands of comments from women and queer people all over the world meeting and making groups and starting clubs and going on dates and uh, going on group holidays. And the power of social media is incredible if you use it in a way that is pro-connection because I think we need to be pro-connection. And um, what we're actually doing with social media is it's almost like this false sense of connection because we see lots of faces, we see what people are up to, but there's no actual depth of connection going on there it's it's very black and white and I think that any action you can do whether that is connecting other people or reaching out to meet someone in real life or giving some positivity online that that's the other thing is that positivity is often seen on social media as something that's really cringy um how dare you be joyful that's embarrassing let's laugh at that person and half Uh the time a lot of the people who say that kind of stuff would never have the courage to put themselves out in that way and it it takes it takes a lot of resilience i think robert to put yourself online and like keep fucking going with it and i Mm -hmm. i really praise those people who put themselves out so vulnerably on social media you know i was saying a minute ago like what does intimacy mean anymore blah 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 I don't think that that means we shouldn't be sharing on social media. People talking about about anxiety, black people talking about their daily experiences with racism, all of this stuff has changed the fucking world. And it's been amazing. I do think, though, that there has now (laughs) you've got these people who don't have those good intentions, who then kind of latch on to this this vulnerability thing. And you you see it all the time where it's like people just sharing to share for sharing's sake. And then... I think you do need a critical eye when it comes to the content you consume on social media because some people will be sharing because they genuinely want to for it to have a positive impact and then some people are doing it for completely other reasons that um, yeah. they want to replicate what someone who genuinely was sharing created for themselves. Right. I agree. I think for all the negative talk about social media, like it's mostly a very positive thing and has really mm-hmm. connected people in a... I mean, this whole like sort of by queer fluid explosion of the last few years, I definitely think is sparked by social media and people actually seeing themselves represented in in new and bigger ways. Uh, and that allows them to see themselves in that and be themselves and embrace these parts of themselves. So I think like it's so good as long as you have some boundaries because there are some trolls out there and people 
not in you know acting in good faith and but with boundaries like we we get so many messages about this podcast and for every one kind of weird message there's 50 you yes. know thank you and this helped me and I Do you find though Robert that um I'm asking this like creator to creator yeah. do you find though that despite the hundreds of messages your mind will stick to that negative one or is that <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, of course of course yeah, right yeah it's, it's, you almost, can always, it's impossible you can, not to yeah and you can always repeat them back word for word what they said right, right? yep it sticks. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah so it's it's difficult you know and yeah it, it, it is it's not easy but but it is i think you know it, the impact is real and and the impact is mostly good um, I want to. I want. I yeah. want to thank you also for just having this podcast. I think it's it's so fucking cool because I. I was saying to a friend earlier, I would have died. I'm obsessed with Glennon Doyle and Abby Wambach as 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 gay women representation, and I was just that's the kind of representation that I would have killed for when I was younger to hear about gay women building a family together and it just being so Mm -hmm. fucking normal and also being a part of pop culture like and people just consuming it as they would consume uh, a straight couple and it's that that kind of stuff that enters the mainstream and those people that start those kind of things it just makes me so happy and I think that what you're doing is really amazing it's just a podcast about bisexuality and it's fucking sick well thank you yeah, I mean, I I basically wanted to listen to this podcast and couldn't find it, so we yeah. just started it. Yeah. But actually, on that topic, let tell us about like the female relationships in the book. There's a lot of intimate female relationships, both friendships, romantic, platonic, and and you know, sort of the fluidity in between that. And how do you figure that out? So, how did you go about writing those? Are they based on real life experiences? And you know, why was it important for you to accurately depict? these intimate female relationships. Yeah, so everything in Girl Crush is fictional, which was why it was so much fun for me to escape into writing fiction. Um, But I can definitely relate to the feeling. So the feeling of having gay sex for the first time, you know, my first time was absolutely nothing as gorgeous as what happened in the book. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But there was, was, again, which was nice, it was was nice to escape into all of these um, different scenes. But the Uh feelings were there, you know, so like anxiety, betrayal, jealousy, anger, uh, feeling confused about your friends, all of all of this kind of insecurities, all of that stuff is the the feelings are absolutely the things that I've felt before, but the story is completely fictional. And that was what was really fun. So yeah, it was it was really exciting for me to write these. I never planned out a single conversation. So the way I wrote the book was I uh, had the skeleton, let's say, of the book structure. And then when I started to give each chapter its flesh, I'd be like, right, okay, uh, chapter number 13, this is a sex scene and let's go. And then I would just start writing it and start writing the dialogue as though I was in the scene. And then it would unfold as it did. And it would be like, oh, this is happening here. This is happening. Oh, okay. She's going to sit on her face. This is happening. And it would just kind of happen as it, as it unfolded the way that sex normally does. And yeah, it was really important for me to write about love and platonic intimacy between women and all the stuff in between where it becomes really confusing because I love reading about it. I love reading about it. I love hearing about it. I love giving language to those experiences because often those experiences between women are unspoken. And I just think there's something so powerful and beautiful about two women who love each other because women love each other differently. 
to how and as a bisexual person I know yeah. this to when you're with a man or to when you're when a man's loving you and all this kind of stuff I just I wanted to write about that um and then also about heartbreak as well I, I wanted to write about all of that kind of stuff yeah yeah I it's funny I really identified with it and I and I also liked reading about these female relationships because I don't always have a window into that in my own yeah, life yeah, yeah. Um, but I really like especially liked the intimate friendship stuff because you know there's often not enough stories about things like that mm. and also about like you know girl crush like realizing you have a crush when you're exploring sexual fluidity it's like I had that thing too of like you know, I, there was this guy in high school who was really good at soccer and <laughs> I wanted to, I like didn't realize I had a crush on him, but I wanted to be good at yeah, soccer yeah, so I yeah. could play soccer with him. And I like always thought he was weird to me and I was nervous around him because he was being weird to me. Mm. But, that, but in reality, I just had a crush on him and I oh, was don't you just Don't him. you just, I like, I, I definitely look back at younger Floss who had all these crushes on women and I go, oh, like, and I feel sorry for her for not knowing. But also, there's no, there's no such thing, like, as powerful and as beautiful as gay yearning. I feel like it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's the yearning. That, and that's, I just want to write about gay yearning for the rest of my life. I think that's it. I think that's the beauty in it, isn't it? It's it's such a, a powerful, sometimes subconscious, if you're not out yet. Like, the whole thing is so beautiful right. in ways that we find, we find these subtle ways to tell the person of the same gender that we like them and sat there wondering did they get the message did they get the hint even even right. when you're fucking out even when you're out you still don't know and I think there's there's so much beauty in that and it's funny as well and I just I love writing about yep. it yep even after you're right even after I was out <laughs> I was on a I was on a date with a guy that I didn't realize was date. a date until yeah, yeah, yeah. an hour <laughs> into the date Oh yeah, and then I, and he knew it was a date, and I had no idea. I I literally made <laughs> I made an illustration in uh, my first book, Women Don't Know You Pretty. It's just two girls sat with a drink, and then it's like a comic, and then the next one is the they're both sharing the same thought bubble, and it's are we on a date or are we two just two pretty girls hanging out? Because you never really know, and you're like, is yeah. this? Yeah. Uh, hey, let's go for drinks, okay? In a gay way. Or do you want to do you want to network? What what's going on? Did you follow me on Instagram? Like, why do you want to go for a drink? And then you end up having to be so direct and asking, which which most people aren't taught to do. It's quite embarrassing to go as a date. Do you mean as a date? Like, but it's something I've had to do a lot of the time. <laughs> yep, exactly. No, I loved that that ambiguity. Stuff in the book. Yeah, right about figuring out that ambiguity and you know adding up the pieces to you know is this a crush or is this a friendship or like yeah you know how, how do you even distinguish those i really i haven't read stuff like that before so i really enjoyed that thank you okay i want to ask you one basically one last topic about like uh abuse and mental health is that cool yeah and then we'll, oh, the then light we'll wrap stuff. It up. <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> so I just want to end on a nice note. Um, well, but I think it's so important, and I really think it's great that you that you wrote about this stuff because, like, yes, I, yeah. So, so one thing we know is that the bi community has worse mental health outcomes than straight, lesbian, mm -hmm. and gay people. Bi people, and especially bi women, suffer higher levels of intimate partner violence and sexual violence. And so, spoiler alert, but like your main character is in a bad relationship in mm -hmm. the in the beginning with a guy 
um, an abusive relationship. So I'm, I'm just curious, like, why did you choose to write about this? How can people reclaim their power in their own life and in their relationships? And does your sexuality intersect with any of these topics, this abuse and reclamation of power? When you say, when you say, does my sexuality intersect with abuse and power, what do you mean? Well, I guess like in, in the book, I kind of see like some biphobic abuse of that the guy sort of puts toward the main character. Yes. And so her her sexuality gets kind of tied up in the negative aspects mm-hmm. of that relationship. Yeah. Um, you know, he he uses biphobic stereotypes against her to kind of try to control her. Yeah, I think there's this feeling also Earth is in such a vulnerable position in the book. And I think it would be very easy if you are a bisexual person who's just come out and you don't really feel like you belong in either communities to feel defeated by someone saying something like that to you and for that manipulation tactic to work and to make you feel like you are greedy or don't really know what you want or are confused about your sexuality, or are just trying it out with men or women to see which one to kind of land an experiment on what you really want. And and the whole other thing with that also is that experiments aren't bad, experiments lead to results, but we have definitely stigmatized experimenting with sexuality. I think experimenting with your sexuality is literally the only, one of the only things that will get you any answers but just tell the people that you're with if if it's if someone's looking for something more serious, whatever. I just think I hate I hate the stigmatization. I never want someone who's in the closet, confused, thinking, "Fuck, how do I know if I'm bi? I really want to kiss girls," and then someone going, "Oh, you don't know what you want. I don't want to kiss you. Whatever." Okay, sorry. Let me get back to what you said. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So yeah, I think that uh, bisexuality can intersect with abuse, particularly when, like you said, uh, what happens to Earth in the book where. Uh, biphobic statements used against her but that w- it was never my intention with the book to talk about the awful statistic about how bi women receive more uh, relationship abuse than anyone else it was just I wanted to write something about struggle something about settling for less than you deserve it's, it's all I talk about in my first book women don't know you pretty is about settling for crumbs when you deserve the whole fucking cake and I think that women have been collectively kind of convinced uh, into g- metaphorically going around the table, picking up the crumbs when everyone else is eating the fucking banquet on top of it. Uh-huh. I feel that most women I know have been in situations where people have tried to convince them that they are worth less than they are. And that was something that I really wanted to explore. I wanted to, I wanted to also explore um, the dynamics between someone on the cusp of realizing that they deserve better. Because with my first book, I was talking all about setting boundaries and um, being able to command better for yourself and your life. And I wanted to show someone going on that journey to show how messy it was. Um, And also we're all having these amazing conversations now about uh, generational trauma and being passed down what your parents' habits. And in Girl Crush, Eartha essentially takes on her mother's relationship with her dad where her mother was in an abusive relationship and she kind of repeats this pattern and ends up breaking the cycle of this relationship when she leaves her boyfriend Matt in the book mm-hmm. but but it's not as clean cut as that because what then happens with Arthur is she just leaves her abusive relationship with her boyfriend and then gets into an abusive relationship with her phone and then gets into an abusive relationship with thousands of people but it's for her benefit but it's also ruining her and then there's the stuff with her her manager and I think that we can't 
just think that when you leave the relationship, it's not going to come up in some different form again. It will keep coming up and then you will spot it and you just get better at spotting it. When it comes to relationship abuse, leaving is obviously the best thing you can do. It's not the easiest. On average, it takes women seven times to leave an abusive relationship. And that kind of statistic just goes to show that manipulation is involved every single time uh, a woman tries to leave because what happens is she tries to go and then she's convinced into staying because um, I'm going to use heterosexual gender terms here because it's predominantly um, men and women uh, where the man will convince her by showing her all of a sudden all of the things that she's been complaining about in the relationship. So let's say the whole time you're asking your boyfriend to go, please go to therapy, please go to therapy. He's not going to therapy. He does the thing that he's been doing to you again, whether that's physical abuse, verbal abuse, he's cheated on you. You say, I'm going, fuck this, I'm done. He comes back, I will promise I'll go to therapy. I promise I'm going to fix this. I'm going to fix this. I'm going to do this for us. The woman's now being over, overloaded with all of the stuff that she's been asking for in the relationship. So she gets back with him. I'll give him another chance. I've already invested two years in this man. I don't want to throw it down the drain. And then he has her again. When he has her again, he'll do the thing again. And then it's a constant loop of this kind of abuse. And then the girl doesn't want to tell her friends because her friends already don't like the boyfriend. It's this whole yeah, yeah, cycle. No. And I, I wanted to write about that because leaving abusive relationships isn't so fucking easy. It's not easy. Yeah. It takes so long to do. And it was something really important for me to explore because I want women to see that there are other options for them out there than constantly choosing people that prove to them that they're not worth anything. And it's nothing makes me more uncomfortable and shakes my fucking spirit than thinking about women in relationships with people who abuse them it's mm -hmm. it's the one thing is well even when I started out my work when I was 18 um I started off talking about sexual assault and sexual harassment that was the thing that kind of got me sparked up was I was going on nights out in my hometown and men were groping me and my friends and no one was saying anything about it and I was the only one who was uncomfortable everyone was like oh floss that's just the way boys are and I I couldn't believe it I just I couldn't accept it and that's what I wanted to do with girl yeah. crush it's what I did with women don't know you pretty I wanted it to be the book that launched a shit ton of breakups for people yeah. who were already unhappy. And the thing is, is any, anyone who does work like I do or anyone who does work where you talk about the signs of emotional abuse doesn't actually cause the breakup. You just cause someone to see what they already know. Most women already know that there is something wrong. They just need to see an example, like this permission slip of someone going, this is bad, by the way. Right. Because you don't know, a fish doesn't know of any alternative to water. The same way a woman in a relationship might not be able to tell abuse from something that's uh, just everyday behavior. Right, right. I think it's great you wrote about that. And I mean, in the same way that we need more bisexual representation out there for people to recognize themselves, I think we need more more of this, things mm -hmm. about abuse and bad relationships because it's happening so much in the, in secret, in the dark, and people don't connect and know what's going on. And so to see, you know, this kind of example of how, what it really looks like in your book, and then also how this character breaks out of it, I think is really valuable for people. And, and the book also has like sort of a great focus on mental health. 
And mm-hmm. that's something I'm, I'm one generation older than you, I guess. And, and uh, I never really read about those kind of things growing up. I never thought mental health was important to take seriously or therapy was, I thought therapy is for people who have something wrong with them. Yes. Quote. Yeah. And so it was great to see your characters kind of dealing with serious mental health stuff, you know, in a messy way, not mm-hmm. in like a perfect way. But And th- that's exactly the thing. Arthur originally, because there were so many versions of this book, did go to see a therapist, uh-huh. but then it wasn't true to character. She was a mess. Yeah. It, it was too neat. It was too neat for her to go and see a therapist. I was like, that wouldn't happen. Yeah. Because you don't, you, you don't want to get out of bed in that situation. And your first thought isn't, let me go get help. That's just not, it's not what happens. And so I wanted to write something that was real and messy. Awesome. Cool. On that lovely note, uh, let me ask you, what's next for you? Are you going to write more <laughs> about this stuff or what are you, what are you working on? Yeah, so um, I want to write books for the rest of my life. Um, I also want cool. to go into design because I actually went to London College of Fashion when I first moved to London. Um, I feel like there's so many threads of my life that I, I want to pick back up again. So there's design, there's illustration uh, that I want to pick back up again. And in the future, the far future, I want to open a cafe for women and queer people. It's just one of my biggest life goals. Cool. So that's like a very long trajectory. But in the meantime, I'm just going to continue to write books. Awesome. That's yeah. great. And yes, we need more like queer spaces that are not cis gay male bars. Uh, yes. But actual yeah. like and, and different like types of queer spaces. Also, stuff like this yeah. podcast. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming to this podcast. Thanks uh, for having it's me. It's really Robert. nice to meet you. Yeah. And, I, and everyone, check the show notes. We'll, li- we'll link to everything in the show notes. The book is called Girl Crush. It's available now. And thanks, Florence Given, for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Robert. Two Bad Guys is produced and edited by me, Rob Cohen, and it was created by me and Alex Boyd. Our logo art is by Caitlin Weinman. Our music is by Ross Mincer. We are supported by the Gotham, and we are part of the Zencaster Creator Network. Use promo code Two Bad Guys to get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster. Thanks for listening to Two Bad Guys. <laughs>